0: Two Barclays Analysts. One hot topic. All sides explored. This is the Flip Side. The Flipside is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the Flip Side. I'm Jeff Melly, the Global Head of Research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Ajay Rajadox, our global chairman of macro research. Thanks for joining me, Ajay.
1: Great to be back, Jeff.
0: Today, we're going to tackle a topic of vital importance to investors, but also to Americans in general, the rapid and seemingly unstoppable rise of the U.S. debt. Now, we've been hearing about potential debt crisis in the U.S. for years. I mean, I can remember, A.J., all the way back to Mm the 1990s. Remember, we had that debt clock in Times Square and it was uh, creeping up. And then in the late 90s, of course, it started to go down again because we started to have uh, budget surpluses instead of deficits. And so we've been sort of waxing and waning on this debt issue for a long time. But right now, the concerns feel more tangible to me. And they're also coming from people on both sides of the political spectrum.
1: That, that's very true, Jeff. What you said about right now being a little different. I would add that different people seem to be worrying about different things when it comes to US debt. So for example, I am quite honestly far more worried about the government crowding out private borrowing over a longer period of time. It's a slow moving problem. I don't think there is an imminent crisis coming.
0: Yeah, I have a different take, Ajay, because I'm actually more worried about the risks that the government debt is posing to financial stability and to the financial system.
1: Now, the size of the debt, Jeff, is definitely raising eyebrows. But don't forget, our future trajectory is the other problem. And I think as we start this conversation, maybe let's start with the size.
0: Yeah, the size of the debt is pretty eye-popping. U.S. government debt is now at nearly $34 trillion dollars. That's like a hard number to get your head around actually. So, I think it's it's easier to kind of put it into some kind of context. So, the first context I would put it into is that 34 trillion dollars is 120% of US GDP. So at this point, the size of the government debt is above the size of the U.S. economy.
1: Yes, but there's one point to note here. Remember that $34 trillion that you mentioned, that includes about $7 trillion of debt that the federal government owes itself. Too much to go into detail here, but a better metric might be debt held by the public, which is around $27 trillion or 100% of GDP. But honestly, I like to think about debt per capita. That is the debt divided evenly across each person in the United States. And right now, debt per capita is about $100,000.
0: Well, first, I think it's a bit weird that the government owes debt to itself. I'd like to issue some debt to myself. <laughs> um, but regardless, that point you just made there is really interesting. $100,000 per person, that's a big number. And And what's interesting is you spread that across the entire population. That includes children, retired people. If we think only in terms of workers, it's actually more like double that. The
1: uh-huh. That is right, and it is only growing from here. In 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, debt to GDP will be 120%. In 20 years, it'll be 145%. In 30 years, it'll be 180%. This is a runaway train at this point.
0: Now, I can hear some skeptics out there saying, oh, these debt paths that people talk about, they're so unrealistic, it never actually works out that way. But just to dispel any skepticism that the debt can rise that quickly, we should keep in mind that just 15 years ago, right before the financial crisis, US debt to GDP was below 40%. So it can, and in fact has, grown very rapidly, particularly during a crisis when both revenue falls, like taxes go down, and uh, the government tends to issue a lot of debt to respond to the crisis.
1: That's true. Uh, Even worse, this is not just a crisis story, Jeff. So take last year, the annual deficit doubled to $2 from from $1 trillion the year before. But far more worrying for me than the deficit doubling was the context. Because right now is as good as it gets. Everyone is employed, the economy is growing. This is when the deficit is supposed to collapse. That's what happened in the late 90s, which you were mentioning, when we stopped paying attention to the debt clock. Imagine what happens when there is a recession and tax revenues fall.
0: Well, of course, Congress could just raise taxes or cut spending, right? That's just going to solve the problem.
1: All right. If you believe that I have a bridge to sell you, next time you go home to Brooklyn.
0: Yeah. Why are you so skeptical though, Ajay? I mean, something has to give at some point.
1: Eventually, at some point, yes. But I don't think in the near term. I mean, keep in mind, both spending cuts and tax hikes are very politically unpopular. Nothing is going to happen in 2024. It's a presidential election. And either a Democratic or Republican administration will have other immediate priorities in 2025. 2026 is the midterm elections. And historically, it is very, very hard to push through anything meaningful in the last two years of any president's term.
0: All right. So you're saying we're not going to find ourselves enacting a proactive near term fix. So, Ajay, the first and most obvious concern that gets raised about the size of the debt is that the U.S. is going to run out of money. Like the U.S. government won't be able to pay interest or principal on the bonds that it has issued. Now, I just want to point out that's really different, what I'm talking about, from Mm -hmm. the debt ceiling negotiations. The debt ceiling negotiations is a political problem. Like, will we pass the laws necessary to allow us to pay the debt? I'm talking here something more economic, like we can't afford to pay the debt.
1: All right. So that, what you're talking about, really is not a possibility. Countries that default don't issue debt in their own currency. Most of them are emerging economies. They have dollar debt and they they just can't print dollars. That's why they get into trouble. The United States does issue debt in its own currency. We are never going to run out of money to pay.
0: Okay, but just remember that UK episode that we had last October. Remember the context. Uh, Liz Truss was the PM. Her government uh, enacted a plan uh, or proposed a plan of tax cuts, and that prompted a crisis of confidence. It caused both UK government bond yields to spike, and it also caused a crisis in the pound. Now, keep in mind, the UK, just like the US, it also issues bonds in its own currency, in that case in sterling.
1: That is true, but then that brings me to the other specific thing about the United States. Fairly or unfairly, we benefit from what you would call exorbitant privilege, We are the bedrock of the global financial system. We are the world's largest economy. And by the way, Jeff, we are the largest holder as a country of global financial assets. U.S. net wealth, including the government, households, corporates, Our assets as a country that we own, minus our liabilities, are well over $100 trillion.
0: Well, markets might not question the United States' ability to service its debt, but they will question our political ability to make the hard decisions.
1: That is true. But I think the consequences of that will be linked more to market reactions to the sheer amount of debt that we have to issue rather than a real and true payment crisis. The first and most important effect is that the government, as it sucks up an ever greater share of private savings starts to crowd out borrowing from the more productive parts of the economy. And keep in mind, there is one global pool of savings. So if the US government wants to borrow more, there is less for companies, there's less for households to borrow. And of course, government borrowing also pushes up the cost of all debt. So that hurts private investment, it hurts capital formation, and it hurts economic growth.
0: Well, well, Ajay, first I would point out there's probably some people out there who would quibble with the idea that the government spending isn't productive. I'm not (laughs) going to quibble with that part. But what I would say is that the crowding out you're talking about may be technically true at a global level. I mean savings equals investment like across the glo- like you know globally that 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 sort of equation has to hold but as you said earlier the US benefits from being the largest and I would argue the most dynamic economy on the globe and so sure someone, someplace is going to get crowded out as the U.S. government borrows more. But are we realistically saying that that entity is going to be U.S. corporations? I mean, they can tap into investors globally, just like the U.S. government can. And I would expect those global investors to withdraw their funding from other places first.
1: It is still simple supply and demand, Jeff. Markets will demand a higher interest rate to purchase treasuries as supply keeps rising. And that is the risk-free rate. In fact, we've already seen in recent months that some treasury auctions have gone poorly and sure enough interest rates have risen across the curve, across the board in response.
0: Look, I think that some emerging countries that borrow in dollars, I think riskier corporates in the developing world, plus maybe some areas where foreign investment is falling due to political and economic concerns, like what we're seeing in China. Those seem like more obvious places to look for crowding out. I mean, if you look historically like at, at data on government borrowing versus corporate borrowing, you do see that something like an extra $100 billion of government borrowing shows that capital formation away from the government goes down by like 60 or $70 million, but like a decade later. I guess that would count technically as crowding out, but at that magnitude, it gets swamped by any other factor.
1: All right, so look, as you said, that is historical data, and that kind of seems to assume that the all-in cost of financing doesn't rise, but I think this time around it's going to be different. The version of crowding out I am worried about can be summed up in one word. Term premium.
0: Yeah, but, but AJ, term premium is two words.
1: Well, that's funny, but <laughs> this is no laughing matter. Term premium is the extra yield, as you know, Jeff, that a long-dated bond earns over and above the market estimate of the path of short interest rates over the life of the bond. And the United States has been very lucky. We've had low, even negative term premium in government debt, which means investors were willing to accept lower yields for the certainty of locking in long-dated interest rates. But I think that is going to change as the amount of debt in treasuries, grows.
0: You know, I would link this historically low term premium to that exorbitant privilege that you named before. I mean, there's a reason why investors were willing to accept U.S. government debt at lower yields That's because it's extraordinarily safe. It is the bedrock of the financial system. But so far, you haven't said any of that changes. So why does the term premium change?
1: The reason term premium will change, despite everything you mentioned, is because the natural demand for treasuries should fade relative to supply as supply just keeps ballooning. And keep in mind, companies, corporations, they borrow at a premium to the government. So now maybe that premium will fall a little over time, but it will still exist, which means corporations will pay the full term premium. For US Treasuries and then some.
0: Look, there is, of course, something uh, to the link between supply and demand, and I get why extra supply might lead to extra term premium. Um, but realistically, what are we talking about here in terms of magnitude?
1: Uh, We are talking about 50 to 100 basis points, basically an extra 1%, which matters a lot when you're talking about tens of trillions of dollars of debt.
0: Sure, it does matter a lot from the standpoint of the U.S. budget. Of course, all that adds up to extra interest payments that the U.S. government's going to have to make. And like you say, it's spread over literally trillions and trillions of debt. But uh, first, if the Fed starts cutting rates next year, which is what market prices currently indicate is going to happen, we really going to care so much about fifty or hundred basis points of term premium?
1: It depends on how much the Fed cuts, but I think we will. And i would point out, Jeff, that we don't expect cuts anytime soon. We think late next year at the earliest and fewer cuts than the market is pricing. So yes, I think it will matter.
0: But let's get back to how the extra yield is going to actually affect corporate investment. I mean, I think that there are some really attractive investment opportunities out there. So attractive, in fact, that corporations will look through what we're talking about in terms of the extra cost of debt. I mean, think about AI. It's such a potentially in enormous game-changer. Are we really going to think that corporations won't make those investments because of an extra 50 or 100 basis points?
1: Look, AI is sexy, but the fact is that we are an enormous economy, and investment in AI is a small fraction of the investment in the overall economy. And even in that sector, those companies will also need to raise money to build new capabilities. And yes, they will build less of it if the costs are higher.
0: There's also a productivity story here. I mean, AI could be a huge positive productivity shock. That would raise growth, it raises tax revenues, and potentially even alter the path of debt. So so keep in mind that even if the debt is exactly the same in absolute size, if the economy grows more rapidly than we're forecasting, we're spreading that debt across a larger economy, and it's much less of a problem.
1: Yeah, I, I don't buy all the AI hype, Jeff. History shows that even game-changing innovations take a long time to show up in productivity. And we are running out of time, the rate at which our debt is growing, before these effects matter. Hope is not a strategy for the largest economy in the world.
0: All right, now, w- one last challenge for me. What about the massive medical innovations that are happening? That's another big area of investment. And again, a place where I think corporations are not going to be as worried about um, minor changes in the cost of debt. You know, a big part of the deficits in the U.S., the structural deficits that's leading to this unsustainable debt path is healthcare spending. We have these new drugs, things like Ozempic as a great example, which could really address a lot of the structural causes of our high healthcare spending. There's also big advancements in things like gene therapy on the hor- or gene editing, rather, on the mm-hmm. horizon. Just think about how many economic resources go towards treating diseases that might be redeployed into other uses as these new drugs and techniques start to take hold.
1: All right, so, yes, you're right. There is a biotech revolution going on. Uh, Ozempic is the most visible... Uh Byproduct of it, and that there is probably more to this story. We have started to see investors think through the implications for all sorts of companies food and beverage, of course, but also healthcare, like you know, dialysis providers and hospitals, even airlines reducing their fuel bills, restaurants. But while healthcare spending is a large part of the economy. The path is unsustainable, even absent healthcare spending not going up. And don't forget, healthier people also have longer lifespans, which then shows up in far more spending on entitlement programs like Social Security.
0: All right. So I want to turn to a different risk. We've been talking about crowding out. I want to turn to risks about financial stability caused by the size of debt
1: how do you mean like a banking crisis? Well, not exactly.
0: I don't think a standard banking crisis the way we think of it after the global financial crisis is really that much of a risk.
1: I I agree with that. I mean after 2008's financial crisis, reforms forced banks to raise capital far more significantly and improve their liquidity and risk management and and this seems to work. I mean you saw the experience during COVID, banks weathered it extremely well and it shows that even major shocks, very major shocks would not spread to the overall financial
0: Yeah. And then I think more recently, we had uh, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank go down due to poor management of interest rate risk. And the fact is, even that crisis didn't spread. And that suggests banks have actually managed well and do have um, sufficient capital. And by the way, it looks like capital requirements might go up again, which makes a, a, a sort of an old fashioned banking run even less likely.
1: All right, so what is the stability issue, Jeff?
0: Yeah, so the issue is that the new rules have constrained banks so much. In fact, they're so successful at mitigating bank risks that banks now have a very limited capacity to do what we call intermediate in the government debt market.
1: Well, intermediation basically means acting as a market maker. You're saying basically moving bonds from sellers to buyers, yeah?
0: But in the treasury market, Ajay, it means more than just that. It can mean financing positions. So there are investors like hedge funds that like to leverage their holdings of treasuries. They have to find that financing from someplace and they get it from banks. It means exchanging currencies like through the FX swap market. So as we've mentioned, global investors take advantage of opportunities here in the U.S., but oftentimes they want to do that, but also hedge their currency exposures and so they need banks to be able to do those kinds of hedges. Finally, it also means facilitating hedges on interest rates themselves. Mm-hmm. So companies and investors, as they build plants, engage in M&A, shift their portfolios around, they want to do things like interest rate swaps, interest rate futures, interest rate derivatives, and banks have to intermediate in all of that too.
1: Yes. And there are aspects of the new rules that limit banks' ability to intermediate. You're right. For example, even though treasuries are generally considered risk-free, they now carry a capital charge because other seemingly risk-free assets like parts of European sovereign debt ended up actually being very risky, including during the financial crisis.
0: Yes. And although we've already talked about how treasuries are not really risky, like from a credit perspective, like the government's going to pay the bills, all of the complex financing and hedging activities that I just talked about actually can be risky. Right. So I'm not really arguing against the rules. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that that they limit the ability of banks to facilitate all of the activity that goes along with treasuries. But the quantum of that activity grows as the size of the market grows. When there's more bonds, there's more financing needs that have to get done. There's more hedging that has to get done. There's more currency swaps that have to get done. And if the ability of banks to intermediate in this market gets too low relative to the size of the market, then the market could be exposed to shocks. And those shocks cause big ripples in the financial system and eventually even the economy.
1: So we have seen two examples of this phenomenon over the past several years, yes. In September 2019, remember, the U.S. repurchase, or what we call the repo market, experienced a shock as rates, which were otherwise close to 0% alongside the Fed funds rate, spiked suddenly to over 10 that is a market where investors finance their holding of treasuries.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it forced the Federal Reserve to intervene because they were very worried about the stability implications. Mm-hmm. And then s- the second I suspect that you were going to talk about was what happened during COVID, right? Because the treasury market experienced a bout of very scary and very poor liquidity. I mean, normally, U.S. treasuries are like the single most liquid um, asset in the world. But at that time, trading was very limited and risk transfer was extremely expensive. Again, something that scared regulators.
1: Yeah, but both times the Fed did step in. The US Federal Reserve intervened. It injected liquidity into into the system, basically providing lender of last resort financing. It eased the strain and markets returned to normal. There was no system-wide failure. So, So why worry more now? Because I think the probability
0: of these shocks is growing as the size of the debt grows. And with each shock, there is a chance that the Fed either doesn't intervene quickly enough, doesn't intervene powerfully enough, or its intervention simply doesn't work. I mean, look, as a rare event, Fed intervention in the market, that's fine. It's going to happen sometimes. We have a long history of of Fed interventions. But but the risk is that if it happens more frequently, then the chances of them losing control of the system grow. And that's really scary.
1: I still think slower moving issues like crowding out the private sector are a bigger problem than these financial stability concerns you mentioned.
0: Well, look, we might disagree on that, but I think that we do agree that the problem isn't going away. And certainly it's not a problem that there's any path to solving, at least over the near term.
1: Well, hopefully in this instance, Jeff, we are both wrong. And there is a magic bullet, perhaps the sudden jump in productivity you, you nodded to that reduces U.S. debt needs over the future.
0: Well, I'm not holding my breath, Ajay. I don't really see a solution that doesn't involve making some hard choices. Clients can read our latest take on the fragilities in the U.S. financial system in trapped capital and the changing nature of financial shocks, available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log in to Barclays Live or find out more at Barclays.com/CIB.